And so, thank you very much for joining us. This is about uh, the digital future of healthcare or, or the current work that we have been doing since we opened in 2015. Uh, we have a vision of really um, being a healthier community, exceptional care, but our mission is something that we have been fairly consistent with for a number of years, and that's working together to deliver innovative and compassionate health care in our community. We have a strategic plan that we focus on um, almost constantly, as I know many of the organizations do. Ours really talks about the diverse community we serve. This is a community uh, with a catchment area of 850,000, one of the most challenged communities in Ontario and Toronto. Uh, we wanted to be a high reliability hospital, and you will see much of what we do today drives to high reliability care. We're, we wanted to make a positive impact both for our staff, our physicians, also for our patients, and in fact, engage staff and physicians who have time to spend with their patients was always a driving force for us. We are moving towards becoming an academic hospital and we'll be sharing research with people and then of course achieve a sustainable growth. Now, in the province of Ontario, worrying about receiving, uh, attaining your growth in a hospital um, doesn't appear to be much of a problem anymore. So uh, we had that one um, worked out very well. As many of you, we existed on three old sites, um, all in northwest Toronto, merged in 1997, brought those hospitals together. Uh, diverse high needs community I spoke about, and we were fortunate enough in the year 2000 to have the support of our board of directors to um, move to a new hospital and abandon some redevelopment plans for those sites. It took 15 years before we moved in, which if you've been involved in hospital uh, expansion, that's very typical. Uh, we spent a great deal of time telling people that we would be all on one site, and we were for six months. Uh, so be careful what I say. <laughs> Church and Finch, actually number one and number two, have reopened as reactivation care centers, restorative care for the alternate level of care uh, population that always exists in hospital. One of our sites, Finch, has been open for a year. Church completed its opening on Sunday, and we've had terrific outcomes for patients there. So a really nice model of care. Pretty well every hospital in Toronto or the Central Inn has a nursing unit there. So it's also a study in how healthcare providers who didn't know each other come together and have a really great time providing care. Uh, our new hospital then opened in October of 2015. We are a very large hospital, uh, and you may note that by walking around today. So this is, we are really 23 and a half football fields. The intention, and Agnew Peckham are here so they will remember it, was that we would fill the facility by 2021. And in fact, within 18 months of opening, we were full. Uh, and our intention had been 130,000 eMERGE visits a year, about 300 patients a day. We are well over 400 many days, over Christmas, five and 600, and so we're on our way to 140, 45,000 emergency department visits a year. A large emergency department, of course, as you know, that drives your medical admissions. We do many surgeries. We do a lot of work as a large community hospital in Toronto, in fact, one of the largest. We are a P3 model, an AFP, whatever you like to call it, Infrastructure Ontario type design. And early on, um, regardless of what one, one may feel about this, we really did understand the value proposition between a traditional build and a AFP build. And in a traditional build, as all of you are aware, we are always hampered by the capital because it's due as you go along, as you're building, it, that all the money has to be paid at the end unless you can take out a bond or a mortgage, which most of us cannot, and so capital becomes the driving force. And you're reluctant to spend too much on capital 
and then where do you make it up in maintenance, repair, utilities, and things like that. And of course, if you've been running hospitals for very long, you know the first thing to go when the budget's tight is the maintenance and repair. So this is the cycle we get ourselves in in healthcare, and it doesn't matter where, I've spoke all over the world about it, and it is the matter we get ourselves into. In an AFP model or a design, build, finance, maintain model, which I am a proponent of having the maintain in there, there is less focus on the CapEx because it's paid over a period of 30 years. And it allows you then to spend capital money on utility, uh, to spend capital money on design to decrease your ongoing costs, utility, maintenance, repair, life cycle and refurbishment. And we were fortunate to really understand this early on and spent a great deal of time focused on that. Some of the things we put in the building, it's not that they cannot go into redeveloped sites, it's not that everybody has to use them, but our focus was if we had to spend on capital to save in operating, then that was a worthwhile uh, adventure. We did have a challenge. We were moving to a hospital that was more than twice the size of our current facilities. On three sites, we were moving to one site and we were building very large. And so the challenge, of course, was, as all of you know, you can double the size of your building, but if 76% of what you do, roughly 76%, is paid for people to walk around, the Ministry of Health is not increasing your budget by double just because you chose to build by double. And so that was really our other driving challenge. We were large because we were the first hospital in Canada to be provided the opportunity to build 85% single patient rooms. So the rooms you see today will largely be single patient rooms. Um, we have uh, two semi-privates and of course no ward facilities at all. Certainly a great and healthy way to build. There's probably nowhere else in the world we would ask you to move in with a sick, call, a sick person that you don't know and share the bathroom. So very good initiative and I think it's the future of healthcare. Um, but it, ha it does add square footage and for the architects in the room there's always the debate about the inboard bathroom and the outboard bathroom and where do you walk and we did a lot of testing and I will show you that. We are also a bariatric compliant hospital, um, so new building standards requires everything to be wider and bigger and doorways to be larger, and then we added a bariatric component to that. We do around 600 bariatric procedures a year, so important to us that we had that environment throughout our hospital. But I think in the changes in society, important for all of us as we build facilities. So what did we do? We did a lot of work with GE Hospital of the Future team over the years in our old facilities and we followed our staff around to actually see what they did in the course of a day. So we did not put them in a room, fill the room with white paper and say, how do you deliver care? Because surprise, surprise, people do it so automatically they forget the steps. And so what we did was actually have them followed around for six weeks, stop and ask them what they did. We built a model. We said, doesn't matter what design we use, this is you running around. Here's what you're looking for. How many trips to the nursing station? How many trips to the med room? That was a really driving issue for us because when you look at it, we found 38% of a staff member's time was spent caring directly for patients and the rest was everything else that frustrates us in the course of a day and also causes us to not focus on the critical element, the care of our patients. Here's what we found. At our legacy sites, 86,000 square meters on three sites, a nurse in a 12-hour shift on a medical floor, this is the example I will give you, walked 5.4 kilometers to deliver care, to hunt and gather, to search for things, to write records, to go back and answer telephones. If we moved to the new hospital and all we did was add water and grow larger, that walk would be 11.6 kilometers. 
in the face of an aging workforce and in the face of more uh, ill patients that require more care, we were not going to be successful. And that really became an initiative and a reason for us to focus on doing th things differently. And we did work with architects and we tried circular designs and square and T-shaped nursing stations. And at the end of the day, if you have 32 750 square foot patient rooms to walk by, it, unless you're going to stack them on top of each other, there's a lot of walking. So we became, we came to understand that it was really about that hunting and gathering, all those trips to the station, all those communication opportunities that was important and we worked with our staff. We coined it decreasing sneaker time and staff came up with hundreds of ideas as you can see in the yellow notes. We prioritized them to things that were not toys for toys sake but would actually have the outcome that we wanted. We also knew, and this was back in 2010, that patients were more connected to knowledge and more demanding around their uh, care and they understood better and they wanted to be part of it. The world of information technology at that time was creating useful devices. I would say it still is. Some have come to market, but not maybe as many as we had envisioned back then. Virtual care is emerging as effective and practical, and here we are, how many years later? 10 years later, talking about virtual care for our patients in emergency departments and options to not come to the hospital, and then artificial intelligence is arriving. So that was in the back of our mind. What we did was we coined uh, three elements for our project, lean, green, and digital, they became to be known, really focused on patient and family-centered care, but you'll recall that our vision and our mission or values were driving us towards high reliability care, and that is one of the things we really wanted to focus on. So we created a conceptual architecture, and I say we, that's the royal we. This was more the IT department than me, but now I've learned to understand it. And there are vendors in the audience who will recall in 2010, 2011, when we went out with this, people thought, oh wow, what are they smoking? So uh, what we did do is though we asked for point-to-point -point connection between equipment. And if you think about it, prior to this time, we shared information in whatever way we can. Most often we wrote it on a piece of paper and we went over to a chart and we entered it. And many of us still practice that way. What we asked, regardless if it was the security system, the building automation system, the patient records, the nurse call system, wayfinding and signage, fire alarm, that all of them had a point-to-point -point connection. Because where there was a point-to-point -point connection, we would have true interoperability and not have to translate data from one spot to another. And that is where we really created our efficiency, and I will show you some examples of that. So we had four elements of our digital vision, digital information, being mobile and connected, patient empowerment, and system automation. And we drove forward in our design with that and had some interesting concepts, many of which worked and some of which we couldn't get, um, couldn't get to because products were not available yet, but this is an ongoing journey. So under digital information, we want information to be readily available, simultaneously contributing to information and sharing of knowledge. We want it to be actionable, to contribute to workflow automation. So let me give you my best example I always give of um, interoperability and, and what we were driving for. Uh, years ago, many of you today in practice and certainly in your family doctor's office might have a blood pressure machine that you wheel into the room and you put the blood pressure machine on and you have a thermometer and the patient's vital signs are taken and they're written down on a piece of paper and put in the nurse's pocket. That's what happens. 
put in the doctor's pocket. We got a little bit more modern and we had a nice blue machine that did all that for us and it showed all the signs and what did we do? We still wrote them down on a piece of paper, put them in our pocket and later went to the chart and hopefully transcribed correctly, if you could read your own writing later. Um, so at the end of the day at Humber River, we have those machines, the automatic blood pressure machines, with our colleagues from a number of, of vendors working together, mounted on the wall and you will see it in the patient room. The patient is registered to that room, staff member wears a, um, a tr a tr an RTLS tracking device, and when you take the vital signs for that patient, provided you agree with them, a tick simply sends them to the chart. No transcription error, no delay in getting them into the record. Though that's true interoperability, and I challenge you as you think about developing equipment, as you think about building, as you think about resolving some of the errors that occur in healthcare, interoperability is the key to it. And we should all be having our vendors work in that direction, and many are. Mobile and connected. The amount of time that was spent running back and forth to chart, to document, to write on a piece of paper, only to go then and type it into a chart, uh, was um, immeasurable amount of time. That was the biggest issue that we <coughs> really found. I think it was 38 trips to a nursing station on the size of our units a day was the kind of thing we were trying to prevent. So people had their relevant information, they had to have it at their fingertips, and it had to be immediately available. And systems need to connect with two people to drive performance. All systems have to be 100% uptime, and we did go out to the market requesting 100% uptime. And I think some of our vendors are here today who said, oh wow, there's another nut idea they have. But it did work, and when you switch out CapEx for operational, and you think that you are an operate, you are an environment that is digital, then you need to drive to that, and it worked. We have very little downtime, except when Meditech, which is our vendor, upgrades their system, and we did that recently. We went to Meditech 6.1 throughout, and never heard so much complaining about paper in our whole life. Um, so good sign, but these are the challenges that you have when you become digital. And then interoperability, they have to work together to deliver a more effective outcome. You have to be able to save, you have to be able to prevent injuries and errors, and in a P3 AFP model, you have that opportunity because it's not just about capital. So interoperability devices we have available in the hospital. Some of these, if you go on the tour, you will see. These are all devices that either empower the patient, allow the patient to manage the lighting or the heat in their room, to look at their record, us to chart. It allows rhythm strips to a handheld device, hence I'm not running to the nursing station to respond to alarms. A number of different devices you will see. The one that I like to share, because this is, as the CEO, the most thank yous I get. This is a perioperative workflow management system. When a patient comes for surgery at Humber River, they register at the desk, they are given an RTLS device to wear. We ask them for telephone numbers from anywhere in the world that they would like us to notify family members of their journey. And that is simply recorded once by the staff at the, at the registration desk. And for the rest of the journey, messages like this, no matter where you are in the world, are received on the text. And it tells you that the person has been registered for surgery, that they're in the pre-admit area, that they're in the operating room. They've moved to the recovery, or they've moved to the inpatient unit, and you may go visit them. It's been, or they're ready for discharge from daycare, whatever those messages are. And we have families who are, I mean, people live all over the world, and their family members are having surgery, and this has probably been the most unique thing we've done. There is also a um, screen in the hospital for those that don't have a phone, and they can follow up with a number of the patients. So, good uh, piece of software. If you're looking for something that drives patients, that's one. We worked with ASCOM, and we have developed and are about to upgrade, actually, a, um, a, a handheld device which allows us to connect nurses with the patients. It's their uh, patient call that they can communicate directly with the patient. 
It connects systems with people. Critical lab results automatically go there, and I will show you our lab system. You can see rhythm strips. Codes are called to it. We are still overhead calling because the fire marshal likes overhead calling, and we'll work with him on that. Uh, building system alarms go there. Special purpose alarms go there. And then, of course, all of the other things, including wandering patients, if there's an infant induction issue, anything. That becomes a very useful device for our staff, and we are working to have it uh, transferred to a app on a cell phone so that others will be able to use it and carry one device, not two. These are our automated guided vehicles. These are our first robots that we brought in, our AGVs we worked with Swiss Log on. They are devices that deliver most of our supplies. They run on their own by simply putting a cart on a, um, a, a, a rack to say, okay, the cart has to go here. The cart is barcode labeled, so when the robot rides under it, it knows where it's going. Uh, it opens doors, calls elevators, delivers product, lets people know it delivered product, and if something is in its way, sends a message back to headquarters. And when we moved in, and all of our new staff still like to jump in front of it to be sure it stops. It does, but they keep trying it, and it says, please move out of my way, I'm trying to deliver a product. And, um, and then people like to ride them, but they're not barcode labeled, so that doesn't take them anywhere. And you, yeah, they're really, but they've been fabulous from a resource position. And it is interesting, when we first saw these devices, you know, people were opening doors and calling elevators for them, which for us was not an operational efficiency we were looking for. So you always have to push a little bit further. We have worked for a number of years with SwissLog, and I would like to get them there for these to transfer stretchers. And it doesn't mean a staff member wouldn't go along, but it doesn't mean two need to go. And when you're transporting bariatric patients, it doesn't mean that you have to have extra people. So I think in a facility this size, and just for efficiency, it would be worthwhile. And so I would always like to bed people and the elevator people, or the elevator and the robot people, if you're here to get together on that one. We'd be delighted. Um, Communication and breakdown in communication is often what leads us to errors. And if you're a healthcare provider, or you're here from HEROC, or you're here from any of the other companies, you will hear about labeling errors on lab specimens, and you will hear about medication errors. And that is because somebody writes an order that we can barely read in a chart, somebody transcribes the order and may mistranscribe it, at the nursing station, you print your specimen labels and you go to the patient's room, except you walked in the wrong room. You may have labeled it incorrectly and it gets to the lab, it's processed and it's for the wrong patient. At Humber, orders are entered by the physicians into the, C the order entry system, which is common in many hospitals now. But we've taken it further. Those laboratory results are automatically sent to the handheld device of the lab staff. They go to the bedside with a barcode label reader and they barcode, they read the patient's barcode and the right label is spit out for them with the instructions of which tubes to fill and then they are filled and sent by our P-tube to the laboratory. We worked with the laboratory on a machine where we could, we could run more than one specimen at a time and that could be connected to a health record to send the results again, faxing, filing, sending results, transcribing results, phoning critical results, all an opportunity for an error, all wasted steps. And so we did develop a machine uh, along with a number of companies and, and it had been in one other place in the world, but we have it such that when the tube goes in, one tube or 10 tubes, the testing starts. The tube is never touched by people again. The cap is removed by the machine and the blood is spilled out as required, which is a safety issue for our laboratory staff. 
The results are run, the results are sent to the handheld device of the staff member if they're critical, entered automatically to the chart from this machine, sent to the record, and should the specimen need to be sent to the server farm, the machine knows that and sends it. So full closed loop automation, very important aspect if we're going to get beyond the injuries and the problems that occur in healthcare. We have done the same thing in our pharmacy, and in our pharmacy, our staff have a cart that they take into the room. The drugs are barcode labeled, and you will see this if you go on the tour today. The drugs are provided to the patient only once their barcode um, armband is read. The barcode drug is read. It's an alarm if it's not the correct drug. And the driving issue behind it is once it's administered, the nurse does not need to chart anything. So if you're a patient care provider and you never had to look at another medication administration record, you'd probably be very happy. You don't have to flip the pages and keep signing. So this one has worked out very well and we will show you our results. My goal uh, in this presentation is to show you what we did, did, but we actually now, a couple of years later, have some results we'll be sharing with you as well before we send you on the tour. Pharmacy automation is a really uh, a great um, systems that have advanced significantly barcoding drugs. Um, this is a pharmacy robot, a Riva robot, that actually mixes chemotherapy agents and other drugs, simply accepts the order, has the information on the chart, right patient, right administration, right quantity of drug in an enclosed system, and it spits a bag of chemotherapeutic agent properly labeled out to the nurse. Nobody is in the room with the fumes, and so we have a request because the pharmacy's here, I'll say that, for yet another one in the pharmacy in order to mix some other drugs. So very safe technique. You will get a chance to see our pharmacy today. And if you think about the incidence of medication error, wrong patient, wrong dose, it's very valuable to spend the time automating this from a time-saving standpoint, but from a safety standpoint as well. Everyone at Humber River Hospital wears an RTLS, which is also, a, it's a tracking device, and we say, Uncle Sam's not watching you. I actually tell people we don't have enough money to put somebody in a room and watch what you're doing anyway. But what it is, is it is a code device. If somebody feels uncomfortable, if they feel unsafe, they press this button, and security, by virtue of the RTLS device, knows where they are in the facility and can send the code team and call a code depending on the area. Um, it's been a, a very good device from a patient safety standpoint and we have some literature we'll be producing on that. But as well, think about the size of a building. What's our only other option? Red mushroom panic buttons, which you just can never have close enough. It is also on our equipment. It is on our wheelchairs and our furniture. And this is where interoperability doesn't go far enough. So we can tell where a stretcher and a wheelchair is in the facility, the nearest one, which is great. We still can't tell whether there's a person in it or not. And what we say to the manufacturers of that equipment is, if you get into your car and there's nobody sitting in the front seat, it says the airbag is not on. So we must be able to have a stretcher that says there's nobody in it, a wheelchair that says there's nobody in it. So that's a future aspect of interoperability, that if we're really going to decrease time and make people in healthcare efficient, we want to know where our devices are and when. Wandering patients wear um, RTLSs as well as babies. Of course, all hospitals have babies uh, locked up so nobody can take them. But in our case, um, the system is set up to work along with the elevators. And so first the door to the unit will lock, the elevator will lock, open so the person cannot go anywhere. And should that fail, actually the doors in the facility will lock. So lost patients has not been a challenge since we moved into the building. So what are our results? I'm going to spend a few minutes showing you some of our results uh, just to give you an idea of whether we think we managed well or not. 
And so in our own ho old hospital, we had a 34-bed nursing unit. We moved to a 32-bed. 11,100 square feet, the new unit is 28,000 square feet. So that's where that 5.4 to 11.6 kilometers came in. We moved in with a one to five nurse patient ratio. We have a one to five nurse patient ratio in the new facility. The square footage for, the, for each bed increased by 168% and we have not required to increase staffing. We will as we begin to benefit from our resources that we've been able to save through the work we've done, but at this time we were able to move in, maintain it, and our staff have found it manageable. And uh, when Vanessa Burkowski, who you will meet later, our chief nurse, joined us, um, she was surprised that this would make that much of a difference. So I said, go talk to them. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think you will find that with our staff. It does make a difference. It's about the right toys. It's about the right digital devices that save steps, that automate workflow, because that's what makes them acceptable and be accepted. We are 84.2% of our products are delivered automatically between a P-tube that has a RTLS in it. So if the tube is lost somewhere in the hinterland of the building, it is not actually lost. We know exactly where it is and can retrieve it. And then of course our robots. The robots alone, 164.8 kilometers a day, a significant amount of walking time. And so that meant that there were 24 additional full-time equivalent supporters that we did not need to hire. We moved from our old building to a building two and a half times the size with virtually the same number of porters. Um, and that was a $2.5 million savings every year. So that's where it paid off to pay for the robots to put in an RTLS well-managed tube system that was not going to be down and turn that money into frontline care and frontline service. And that's the CapEx model allows you to do that. So I challenge everybody to go steps further than that and somebody to make us a stretcher for beds. Um, what are we proud of? So a number of things we are very proud of. I will get to our green initiatives and speak about our 100% fresh air, but our single patient rooms and the design we set up where there is hand wash, sink, hand wash, or there's hand sanitizer, sink, hand sanitizer, and hand sanitizer. So you pretty well have to trip over something and we know washing hands is the best thing people can do. But provide people the time and the calmer environment to do it in and most often they will. And so we have been, this took us to Q1, but the data was updated yesterday, 56 months with no ventilator associated pneumonia. Single patient rooms in the intensive care unit, but time and opportunity for people to do things other than searching, gathering, hunting, charting, writing things. We have been many, many months without a hospital-acquired MRSA, and we have not had, let's have a code. Code brown, left two, laboratory, code lab. And then we've been 30 months without any VRE bacteremia which is very significant. Yeah, somebody's saying that's amazing. It is, it's like we are quite pleased, we are very pleased with those numbers. We think our push to uh, high reliability care, uh, variability, it, we, don't, we don't want variability in practice, but make the devices available and give the people time to do it, and I think you'll get there. And I do have to say single patient rooms has probably contributed, and 100% fresh air, no recirculated air. <clears throat> we have uh, now come up with being the best results uh, for patient satisfaction in the central Lynn, and that was not always the case. 
Our incidence of pressure injuries is lower uh, last year than the Canadian norm. So the Canadian incidence is at 12.8% and we are at 8.4% and in about a month we'll have even more exciting results to show. Uh, I spoke about medication incidences. Generally in a hospital, 2.5 to 3.5% of the time, a patient is given the wrong drug, the wrong dose at the wrong time. At Humber, with 3.3 million doses of medication, we have virtually no medication errors. The benefit of closed loops communication. Somebody's not having to read an order, doesn't give it to the wrong patient, doesn't choose to provide the wrong pill pack. So closed loop communication pays off in terms of safe care. And our research results actually showed something very interesting, which I'll just share with you. Barcode scanning was implemented first, and there was a phased approach to that, and we saw a decrease in the errors. As we trained people, as we moved along, and we went to the fully closed-loop administration, so that's that. Nobody needs to communicate. It's all automated. It gets into the chart that way. There's an alarm if you're trying to give the wrong drug is really what dropped it. So closed-loop communication in terms of high-reliability care is something that we talk about a lot. Um, and then we have some innovative leading practices through Accreditation Canada, closed-loop medication, robotic admixture to improve patient safety, barcode verification process for medication preparation. And again, you'll see that if you go on the tour today. <clears throat> Our patient and staff engagement, very important, something I think all of us as providers strive for because we know higher staff and physician engagement will drive better quality patient care. And we were able to move from 53%, but you know what, when we came in the new building, it was still only 60%, which was a bit of a surprise because we thought great facility, great building, gonna make everybody happy, it doesn't. Neither in patient satisfaction or in staff physician engagement, they need the tools to do the work. So I'll just show you a little bit more. We um, received exemplary standing for Accreditation Canada, 99.9 .9 compliance with 2,800 standards and 100% compliance with the 30 required operational practices. Just in the last, was it two months ago, three months ago? Just a short period of time ago we went through our accreditation. So a third party looking at that for us. Our patient satisfaction has moved up over the years, 60%, 72% to 89% this year. So we think we are making some headway there as well. I did want to talk a little bit about the green piece and then I will talk about the command center. So we went out to the industry realizing that energy costs were going to soar and maybe we had an opportunity to do things differently. We also wanted 100% fresh air. We wanted to be lead gold. We wanted sidewalks that the snow melted on automatically. And we wanted terrazzo flooring that was heated so that we didn't have slips and spills in the main corridors. And we got all of that by working in a P3 model with contractors and architects and engineers who joined us in that mission. And we asked them to make sure we were 40% more efficient at least in our energy. And a number of people worked with us. When you go to the units today, you will see some of that. It's really about a fabulous HVAC system, which I'm not an engineer, but if you are, apparently it's to die for. Um, and it's a whole system of heat wells they created where the air flows very slowly through. But in Canada, a huge challenge because you're either heating or cooling the air. You're very rarely doing nothing with it. But 100% fresh air with no recirculated has been a really healthy environment. The other thing we did, and it was the first time in Canada that I would challenge others to do it, is that we introduced a chromatic glass. Ours is by view. And chromatic glass are like those eyeglasses. When you go outside, they go dark, and when you come in, they go light. And they are connected to the building system, and they are connected to the patient's integrated bedside terminal. And depending on the seasonality, the direction of the sun, how bright the sun is, 
the time of day, those light, those will dim, they'll darken, and they darken slowly, but they will darken, or the patient can choose to darken them. It prevented us from having those integral blinds. You know those blinds in the window that break all the time and nobody can figure out how to fix them? Hmm. Well, we don't have those. <clears throat> in most of our areas, we have our glass and it's darkened, but if you go up to the unit and it's a sunny day, I always remind people if it's sunny in the summer and you look to the south and the glass is dark and you look to the north room and it's light, it's not you, it's how our glass works. So it's been a very, very interesting thing for us. As a result of many opportunities we took, again because CapEx, capital is not a problem, we actually knew that if we didn't do something, our energy cost per year in this building would be $7 million. We moved to a 40%, we asked for at least 40% more efficiency and we wanted to save 89 million. We've actually surpassed that. Our savings we predicted would be 2.97 million a year. Over 30 years of the life of the building, it's a huge amount of money to turn back to frontline care. And so at the end of the day, we made it to 41.8%. And so really a good outcome and a lead gold building, but the most energy efficient hospital in North America with 100% fresh air. And that's what people didn't think would work, but it did and our teams worked very hard on it. However, we built it, we opened it. We thought we would have five years to ramp up. And in fact, Scott Jarrett, our vice president, has probably been on this journey longest with me and our board will remember that we were worried we wouldn't meet the volumes. We thought, uh-oh, maybe we will at the end of five years or six years, which the ministry gave us to fill, not be filled. We were within about 18 months full. And in fact, we predicted at that time we would need 44 more beds or it was going to be hallway medicine in a brand new hospital. And hallway medicine, as many of you know, is a reality in Ontario. It's actually, as I travel many areas of the world lecturing, it is a problem in every hospital. And it is that tsunami of older population coming along. It is the disease entities. It's our ability to keep people alive longer who still require more health care. Lots of reasons why it's happening, but we knew we would need 44 more beds or we would be in trouble. <coughs> and why? And what else were we trying to fix? So readmissions and the incidence of elderly population and disease entities and the increase in mental health and, and Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's, um, are all factors that contribute to more people coming for health care. We knew that the spending for cost of care was going up year over year. We were very concerned about the quality of care and the harm for patients. One of every 18 hospitalizations in Canada, the patient actually ends up with an injury. And here Rock is probably going to say they agree with this. It's a well-known fact, and it's usually something that we did unexpectedly and unintended to the patient. But it's significant, and it's a big indicator and a problem in healthcare. And it's usually healthcare or medication associated. 37% of it are hospital-acquired infections, and you saw that 16 and 12% across Canada that we are dropping. It is a procedure-associated condition, many times because of communication, or is it a slip or a fall? And so those were some of the things that we wanted to work on in order to be able to change the outcome for patients. We also know, and I have said this many times, communication is the top cause of a sentinel event. Somebody wrote something wrong, understood it wrong, read it wrong, said it wrong. And where you can do interoperability and automation and eliminate that need for communication, <coughs> then you have done um, us a favor in terms of care. <coughs> High reliability care, which you will hear us speak about and many of you in healthcare are aware of, is really a sensitivity to operations, preoccupation with failure, hence interoperability important to us, deference to expertise, resilience, and a reluctance to simplify. Pay attention to it, focus on it, 
insist on high reliability, and we believe that's the recipe for exceptionally safe care. We did know that our next step, and we had thought about this back in 2008 or 9, that a command center would be the way to deliver health care. And I will tell you the story. In 2009, I had an opportunity to go with Michael Dell, myself and a few people from the hospital, our previous CEO, and he took us to see his command center. And they had a huge room with a bunch of people in a room working, and they had a screen of every computer they had responsibility for, had to build every building they managed in the world on that screen. And they had little UPS trucks driving around, and they had little airplanes flying around, and it was yellow, red, or green. And if it was green, nobody did anything. And if it was yellow, the team had monitored it. And if it was red, all those people that could fix the problem, middle of the room, let's look after it and figure out how to solve it. And you will recall, likely, the days when that company could make a computer in three days and deliver it to your door, repair very quickly. That command center was quite fascinating. We walked away and said, they look after computers better than we look after people. So we started to talk with GE and others and lots of our, con our vendors about the opportunity for command centers. And they are there in other industries. And often in healthcare, we borrow from other industries. In fact, when we brought our automated guided vehicles, our robot, to the board of directors meeting and said how excited we were about it, one of our board members was a past CEO of Kodak. He went, well, we've been doing that for years. Okay, well, we haven't in healthcare, so now we're going to. So I think often you can borrow ideas from others. We had three views for our command center, and this is part of your tour today, but I'll spend a few minutes on it. Patient flow and patient care logistics, and this is about ending hallway medicine. This is about tracking your patients, giving up all those little bits of days, everything you know a month later when you look at the data as to why your beds were crowded, length of stays and emerge that you know about at the end of the month, People waiting for tests that you think, oh, if I'd have known that, maybe I could have sped it up and moved them out. All of those kinds of things that contribute to hallway medicine. That was generation one. I will speak about the other generations in a moment. We did open our command center in November of 2016. Yes. Uh, and we um, called it, we really put together a group of people. There's one new staffing position. And short of that, it's all the patients that do flow in a hospital. Supervisor portering, housekeeping porter, a housekeeping supervisor, porter supervisor, laboratory, diagnostic imaging, flow coordinators, emergency coordinators, surgical booking program. 26 screens of data updated every four minutes that they look at and make decisions if they need to. And if it's green, there's no need to interfere. Let me give you a little bit of it and you will see an example. Very hard work with GE and many of our vendors. We have eight different systems that through that point-to-point -point communication continuously deliver data into the, the screens, into the patient record. Through a GE predictive and logical, logic engine, we have data now that we flash up on the screens and we can predict some of our needs. We continue to work on this. We have created additional screens on the nursing units that you will see, and we have mobile availability of it. Some of us are able to see it um, off-site as well. <clears throat> you will get a chance to see what it looks like, but I'll just show you a couple of the emergency department screens. We always know what pressure or emergency department is in, updated every four minutes based on the scoring system that is well known, but nobody has to add it, nobody has to tally it, it comes from the data. We know the number of patients in the hospital and how long they've been in eMERGE. We know physician initial assessment time, and throughout the entire uh, command center you will see things like physician initial assessment time is supposed to be two and a half hours. 
at two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, there will be an orange light. At two hours and 30 minutes, there will be a red light and somebody intervenes. If there's no red light, if there's no orange light, you don't intervene. You don't surpass what the staff and the physicians are doing. It's a help to the work they're doing. We know if patients have routinely visited the hospital, we call them frequent flyers. We know how long people are waiting in what area of the hospital. It's a full view of everything going on. And when you see the command center, Jane will show you the least digital component of it. And that's a camera into the waiting areas and emerge. A picture's worth a thousand words. We have all kinds of data around patient flow, the department's waiting for a bed, who's got a bed, is there a physician under pressure, don't send a patient to that unit, you know it's gonna cause a delay because the staff and the physician are under pressure. And this tells us every bed available, every patient signed, assigned to a bed, how long they have waited. Green means the bed's empty, orange means the bed is getting close to the 30 minutes in which it was supposed to be cleaned and if it turns red, the portering or housekeeping supervisor is making a call. Likewise, we know when the bed is clean and now we're waiting for the porter and again, 30 minutes is too long and a telephone call will be made because we see a red light. Nobody updates the data and if you create a command center where people have to update the data, it will not be helpful to them. They won't be able to do it. At the end of the day, we've done this for support services, delays in care, medical imaging, census forecast, why people are still here in the hospital, who's got a test today, a test tomorrow, and a test two days from now and are occupying a bed longer than they need to be. Our goal was to create 40 beds of capacity, $11 million savings over a period of two and a half years. <clears throat> we, of course, like every good hospital, came up with all kinds of indicators <clears throat> because that's what we do in hospitals. And so we um, have many that we track, but let me just show you the results. 8% increase in ED visits, inpatient bed cleaning time reduced by 45%. 52% decrease in conservable days, our diagnostic imaging tests are faster, our delays in discharge are faster. And within the first seven months, we found, thanks Joe, that we actually had saved the equivalent of 23 beds. So we made available 23 beds of care for patients through our emergency department. And that gave us a save without spending any additional money, so essentially a saving of 6.5 million. Because had we not run the flow command center, we would have been caring for those patients in hallways <coughs> and in wherever else people care for them, auditoriums and closets and cupboards and places like that with additional staff, usually at overtime. So we are able to track much of that, and Jane will be delighted to show you that later today. Phase two, <coughs> and my favorite one, is clinical pathway and reducing never events. And I like phase one, but you know, it's old news now. So we're into phase two. Why did we do this? It's that one in 18 harm. We want to get at predicting ahead of time, helping our staff and our physicians realize through artificial intelligence, through assistance and monitoring that we might have a problem with a patient we haven't focused on. And so, you know, you, you think change is difficult for staff and they might think it's a bit suspicious. And yet the call went out that we were creating these. There were 350 suggestions came forward. People were showing up in the auditorium to create ideas, all levels of staff, physicians, to help us work through this. We work with GE and a number of ecosystem partners in the States and in Europe uh, to help develop these. We will be the first in the world to use this in a command center. Um, the Flow Command Center, first in the world was John Hopkins, we were second. But the patient safety aspect of it is a first in Canada. There are four tiles we have created. One of them is for perinatal, and the biggest cost 
of health care insurance and the biggest implication for those of us that are watching our funding is in fact an obstetrical delivery has gone wrong. It is a tragedy for a family, it is a tragedy for an infant, and it is a lifelong impact. And we looked at the number of times obstetrical incidents occur in hospitals, and all of us who work in hospitals know it's frequent, and Hiroc will tell you how frequent it is. And what we have done is we have looked at what are the misses, what are the things that contribute. When is it in court that the lawyer says, should have delivered the baby there? And we've walked that information back, and through our record, we will have that information come forward. Um, into a screen in the command center, into a screen on the unit to remind people that maybe there's a rhythm strip that hasn't been um, analyzed correctly, that maybe the oxytocin is running too long, that perhaps that baby was born with a potential for a shoulder dystocia. Have you looked at it? Were forceps used? Is the head circumference being measured? All the things we should do, and in the course of a busy day and in a sporadic unit like obstetrics, doesn't necessarily happen. So our first one, which we'll be launching this summer, is the perinatal tile. Lots more work to be done on it, so that we're inviting all everybody to be part of it. Clinical deterioration tile is that opportunity to really say we should not have a code blue in a hospital. A code blue in a hospital probably means we missed something in that patient that led them to be deteriorating. And so our goal with this one is to use News 2, which is a fairly uh, well-known system in many hospitals, BUS, which really, BPUs, which is really a system that says this patient is, here's a trend in vital signs that might mean you have a problem. Here's their score. Here's where we see the abnormal result. Has action been taken? The third one is our risk of harm tile. And this is looking at uh, one of the guides behind this actually is the best practice guidelines from the RNAO best practice spotlight organizations. We have um, embarked on that journey with them and that gave us some guidance in some of the critical results that we wanted to monitor falls and is there a plan. Pressure injuries and is it changing or improving. Pain assessment and have we assessed it and noticed it isn't better and are we doing something about it. And then uh, a mental health assessment delay, especially for a patient who's an alcoholic. We are looking at sepsis because all of us know that's a big missed diagnosis in healthcare that needs work and then critical lab results. It will be on the nursing unit to indicate that there's a problem. It will be on the handheld device, but it will be in the command center with a clinical facilitator to help expedite. And finally, a seniors care tile. All of us are faced with a huge number of seniors that we care for. And when we bring seniors to hospitals, usually we put them in a bed. We forget to, sometimes forget to get them out of bed. We tend to give them drugs to sedate them. And then all of a sudden, they're worse when they're ready to go home. Our goal for our seniors is to enroll them in a program that does not do that to them and to monitor that process with patient alerts. Are they up? Have they, what drugs are they getting? Is it likely to be causing um, changes in their mentation? Has it caused changes? What is their GI condition? Are they eating? What is their nutrition? And be able to monitor that and move it forward. So that's four of the first tiles that we are developing. They will launch this year. You will hear about them. But we are continuing to work on ecosystem partners and developing more. And you know, at Humber, we believe we'll share any of our info. Hence, we'll take you on a tour. We'll give you our slides. We'll do anything. We're not trying to create something just for Humber. We want to be able to spread it more quickly through healthcare and share our ideas and our information. And finally, phase three. And when we created this, we did not know about Ontario health teams. But here they are. This is community reach and reduced acute utilization. And so really, what we looked at several years ago is an absolutely fabulous way to pull together all of the providers of care in a community, to process the patient's flow much more smoothly, 
to share the record and to monitor at home those people that repeatedly come back to an emergency department. And with an increasing aging, live alone population whose children are busy and working, we will see that more. Is there a way we can use the command center not only to observe and to check, but also with devices that will allow us to monitor a patient there is. And I'll give you one quick example. Schizophrenia is one of the biggest causes of a return visit to emergency department. The patient feels better and they go off their drug. Perhaps the family physician knows when they haven't picked their drug up at the drugstore for three months that in fact the patient isn't taking their drugs. We've probably seen them and emerge twice since then. And so there is a device that's been developed that simply will send a signal if that is not turned to dispense the drug. I cannot prove that they took the drug, but at least we will know they're not even dispensing it. But think about the possibilities, monitoring people at home. What food did they take from the refrigerator? Did they in fact get out of bed? Because if you've got people that are going back home, all the care we provided in the hospital, or in the home, in the community, if the patient isn't doing any of that stuff, they're going to fail. Let's send somebody to them and re-energize them and check on them. So that is our phase three, and we will begin working on that. This year, we will be looking to wearable devices, wearable technology to get us through that one. So that is the end of our formal presentation. I was going to just open the floor for questions. If anybody has any, we have a couple of minutes. <clears throat> anybody have any questions? <laughs> yes. How did you find the, um, the doctor there, but the resistance from clinicians in terms of implementing all of this? We see from the West Coast, we see a number of case uh, studies where hospitals look to implement new tools, and sometimes the biggest barriers change management, not necessarily the technology itself. You're right, and I think there's a, a few things. Um, first of all, I really mean it when I say not toys for toys' sake. So as administrators and as IT departments and as developers of technology, we can always go, wow, that's a really cool thing, I want it. And there were many cool things we wanted, but to what end? If I don't have to sign a medication administration record, if people are not phoning me to ask me about my handwriting, if I know that the results and I'm providing safer care, then I think you get people on side well. I will tell you a couple of other things. We did lots of education and we asked people to join us in the journey. We actually had staff and physicians who we paid during the design journey, who we pay whenever we introduce anything new, and it does not always go perfect, so we'll walk it back if we need to, and we have help at your side. So how did you learn how to use your cell phone? You hollered probably for your kid. How do I do? How do I do, right? So we have the how do you do people in the units and on the departments. The other thing I have not added is that just in the three initiatives I showed you, we have saved almost $11 million in money that still flows to us from the Ministry of Health. We've been able to not only balance our budget, but buy additional services ourselves that were not funded. 600 joints. We purchased an MRI and we staff it 16 hours a day ourselves because we didn't have ministry support for it. We introduced a vascular surgery program with very complex vascular surgery. We do total shoulders and total ankles. Never enough, but when you turn that money, not into paying off your capital because you're an AFP model, not paying heat and hydro because you didn't focus on those things, but turn it to frontline care, you can always get a lot more support for what you do. And I think it's a combination of all of those things. But don't drop the education component and the help at your side. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. We're all right with that? So um, I do have Vanessa. Thank you. I am 
I'm going to ask Vanessa, Dr. Vanessa Burkowski, our chief nurse, and uh, Mr. Terry Leon, our chair of the board, to come up. Vanessa just has a little announcement to make. Thank you. Oh, don't knock the sign over. Thanks very much, Barb. Um, I'm really pleased to announce this morning a uh, release of the special edition of the Canadian Journal of Nursing Leadership, which provides a collection of studies we've conducted here at Humber River Hospital to examine the intersection of technology, uh, nursing practice, and patient experience. Our studies are focused on the digital systems and devices, most of those that Barb talked about this morning, um, that are fundamental to nursing practice and have the greatest potential to pose a risk to patient safety. These foundational studies are intended to provide learnings from our experience as North America's first fully digital hospital and to assist others with developing their technological infrastructure and cultivate digitally capable nurses. I wish to acknowledge our CEO, Barb Collins, here uh, from HRH. She has provided tremendous support from this, for this work and actually um, worked alongside us uh, in the studies. I want to thank the many individuals who were involved in uh, conducting the studies and to the nurses and the patients in our organization who so willingly participated. Special thanks to Dr. Sandy DeLuca. She is Associate Dean School of uh, Nursing at Fanshawe College and adjunct professor at uh, Western University who served as our guest editor of the journal. And a uh, special thank you as well to Diane Foster Kent and Rebecca Hart from Longwoods. Uh, they were tremendous support um, across the 13-month experience of uh, conducting the studies and building the journal. If you'd like, there are some hard copies, uh, one copy each, if you'd like, um, at the back that we'll distribute to, to you, and the uh, journal, of course, will be online. Thank you very much. Uh, just a couple of words. First of all, thank you all for being here this morning. Excuse me. As you can tell, um, our fearless leader Barb has is a ball of energy, and she's and she's like that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and what she didn't tell you is she was actually overseeing all of the construction before she became CEO, and she was a ball of energy then. So it's I, I have never seen her any different, and we're very lucky to have her and our entire team. Uh, I want to congratulate. Um, Vanessa, uh, Dr. Bukowski, who just won a uh, 2019 Nursing Leadership Award from the Canadian College of Health Leaders. Congratulations, Vanessa. Well deserved. <laughs> and Humber, at the same time, from the same organization, won the 2019 Excellence in Patient Experience Award. So we're, we, we th thank you, thank you. It's nice to win awards, but our number one priority is to be a high reliability hospital and provide excellent care. I think if I had to summarize um, what Barb said, really what we're about is innovation, efficiency, and engagement. It's great to have a building, beautiful building. It's great to have <laughs> all the tools and the digital, um, but I think uh, the one question that was asked, which was the most important question, was how do you get the entire staff on side? 
And that is engagement. When we moved into the building, our priority, our number one priority was engagement. Uh, and Barb involved uh, everybody on staff. And in particular in those areas where it involved um, uh, direct effects on departments, she, was, she and the entire management staff was even more involved. So uh, I can't comment enough and say how proud we are of everybody in this hospital. Uh, we really, really like working together, you know, and we do. And we like putting our priority as our patients. And the one thing I have learned, and just a really quick example, that command center, when I first saw it, I got butterflies in my stomach. Not because of what it could accomplish, but because I was afraid that it might be perceived as big brother. Because you really are measuring the performance of everybody in the hospital and how well they're doing. And to my great, great pleasure, how that was perceived, again because of the engagement, was it was just a tool to help everybody provide better health care. And that's how it was viewed, that's how it was accepted, and it became a tremendous success because of that view. And so that's just one aspect. All the things Bob talked about involved the same kind of discussion and communication. And for that, uh, we are internally grateful, and we hope that we can act as a beacon for these new health teams to accomplish the same thing, not only in our area, our catchment area, but throughout the province. So thank you all very much, and we're very appreciative that you're all here today.